Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So here's the story the way the National Hockey League used to tell it. There had never been a color barrier in the NHL. The league's first president, Frank Calder, said in the late 1920s that, unlike baseball, there was no official policy to exclude black players. Quote, Pro hockey has no ruling against the colored man, nor is it likely to ever draw the line. Here's Bob Dawson, the former player and hockey journalist and historian that you heard from in our last episode. You had Clarence Campbell, who was the president from 1946 to 1974. And interesting enough, in 1950, he was interviewed by Ebony Magazine. And the question was put to him, can Negroes crack big league hockey? And he replied, the National Hockey League only has one policy, to get the best hockey players. There is no tacit or otherwise which would restrict anyone because of color or race. And so the argument went, the only reason there were no black players in the league was because no one with the right skills had broken through. So when Willie O'Ree, a black man from New Brunswick, was called up by the Boston Bruins in 1958, there was minimal fanfare. His accomplishment wasn't even noted in the broadcast. Most of the stories afterwards focused more on the presence of the Prime Minister of Laos, who was watching the game as part of a state visit. Len Bramson, a writer for the Hockey News, dismissed the issue entirely. Quote, The fact that there has never been a Negro player in the NHL before O'Ree must be blamed on the Negro race itself. Even O'Ree downplayed his accomplishments publicly. Here he is talking to Hockey Night in Canada in 1961 about it all. In terms of this business of being the Jackie Robinson of hockey, have you had any troubles? No, none, none that you could uh, say that were troubles. I've heard a few jeers like that, but uh, I guess all hockey players. Yeah. So that's the way the NHL used to tell the story. Of course, that's no longer the case. Today, Willie O'Ree is one of the most prominent ambassadors of the game. He was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2018, and he's appeared at countless events celebrating diversity and inclusion. And the NHL now acknowledges that many talented black players weren't given a chance before O'Ree. But even this updated narrative promoted by the league, it's not quite right. It's missing something crucial. Because after 1958, when Willie O'Ree played in that historic game, the NHL didn't bring up another black player for 16 years. It wasn't until 1974 that another black man would put on an NHL jersey and skate onto the ice. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. And on this episode, we're going to look at the experiences of black players in the years after O'Ree's barrier-breaking game and ask the question, did the NHL resegregate itself in those intervening years? More after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world 
and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Bob Dawson felt the sting of racism well before he ever stepped on the ice. I was in grade six and around about report card time, I had a white teacher who happened to be European and handing out the report card indicated to me, you needn't think about going on to university because you don't have what it takes. And, and I got to tell you, as a young person, that really blew me away. On the way home, uh, I was in tears. I was in tears because it had impacted me so much so that in terms of how I then sort of looked at myself in terms of self-respect and value. But part of what allowed him as a child to regain some of that feeling of self-worth was seeing black people out in the world excelling at what they did. And thank God, my dear mother, she uh, used to buy Ebony magazine. I used to sort of devour uh, reading that magazine because for the first time I could see people who looked like me, who were doctors and professional people and professional athletes. And so I started to gain some self-worth, some self-respect. I also read a lot in terms of James Baldwin's work and other you know, prominent works by different Blacks there to help, as I said, reformulate or regain or address that issue of identity and worth. And despite what some teacher thought about him, Bob did make it to university, and while enrolled at St. Mary's in Halifax, he became the first black man to play in the Collegiate Hockey League, and he felt supported on that team. I have very fond memories of it. I was welcomed, I was accepted by the team, by the university. There was no shortage of racism from opposing teams and their fans, but Bob learned how to deal with it. In uh, Anaganish at uh, St. Francis Xavier, we were playing a small arena a very partisan crowd, and I would hear, you know, racial slurs, and also players would be um, physically abusive. But I learned to take care of myself to the point where, after a while, players began to realize that I was not one to sort of mess with because I liked the physical part of it. And though he was the first, other Black players soon joined his team a testament to the depth of hockey talent amongst black maritime communities at the time. In 1969, Daryl Maxwell from Toronto, Nova Scotia, was a black who had come to St. Mary's. And then in 1970, uh, another black came to St. Mary's and 
played on the hockey team. His name was uh, Percy Paris from uh, Windsor, Nova Scotia. Bob remembers one game in particular against Mount Allison University. We're sitting on the bench and uh, Coach Boucher says, uh, Dawson, Maxwell and uh, Paris, uh, I want you to get out there, play on the forward line. And we sort of looked at one another as much as to say, uh, you know, what is going on? But we were somewhat bewildered by it. He said, come on, I want you to get out there. We go out for a few shifts and uh, we didn't realize it at the time, but we had made a history. Because at that time, let alone the fact that there were three blacks on the same team in university hockey, we were the first to play on an all-black line. Bob was good. So good, in fact, that there were people who thought he could do more. At the time, Lowell McDonald, who played for the Pittsburgh Penguins, was around St. Mary's, taking classes to finish his degree. Lowell McDonald attended some of our practices, was always sort of at our games, and um, unbeknownst to me, and I didn't find this out until a little later, that he felt that I had the talent to play in the NHL if given the opportunity. I had thoughts of maybe pursuing a professional career, but as you know, between 61 and 74, there were no Blacks playing in the NHL. I I sort of looked at that and said, uh, no, I'm going to go another path. Instead, Bob went on to do a master's degree in social work and eventually joined the federal public service. I was born too early in terms of potential opportunities to go the route of professional hockey. I don't regret that not happening because I have continued my passion for hockey in a different way, not only playing, but through my research and writing. At the moment that he could have gone pro, Bob had no examples that he could point to in the NHL. If Bob had been playing baseball, he could have looked to Willie Mays or Bob Gibson. In the NFL, Jim Brown had already cemented his position as the greatest running back of all time. And Bill Russell hadn't just led the Boston Celtics to 11 championships, he'd even coached the team. But if Bob had been just a little bit older, he would have seen two black players join the NHL in 1974, both of them playing for the same team. And just like Bob, one of them was from Nova Scotia. 25-year-old Bill Riley made a name for himself in the IHL by being one of the very few blacks in hockey and also being meaner than a junkyard dog. My name's Bill Riley, and maybe James William Riley, I guess, in the hockey worlds, but I was always went by the nickname of Bill. This year, he's become a more complete hockey player and passed the 30 mark in goals. Riley's as tough a man ever to wear the Gems uniform and could one day soon be wearing the uniform of the NHL Washington Capitals. I played for the Washington Capitals and the Winnipeg Jets back in the 70s. Like Bob, Bill was a late bloomer when it came to hockey. We lived in a predominantly black neighborhood, so there there was a lot of black kids that played road hockey, and we played pond hockey. And when I reflect back on it, we had some pretty good players, but nobody ever came and said, here, here's a pair of skates and let's go play organized hockey. Without question, a lot of pretty good young black hockey players slipped through the cracks back in the day. 
Then my best friend growing up come to me and said, let's join up the minor hockey. And well, by this time I was 13 years old. So, you know, normally, normally you'd be playing at probably seven or eight or whatever. So I was that many years behind everybody else. But uh, like I fell in love with the game. I mean, uh, back in the day was uh, hockey night in Canada every Saturday night. It's hockey night in Canada. And he remembers the excitement of Willie O'Ree's first game in the NHL. Making sports history in hockey, as Jackie Robinson did in baseball, Willie O'Ree of the Boston Bruins, a native of Fredericton, New Brunswick, is the first Negro to play in the National Hockey League. When we heard that Willie was going to play, well, everybody huddled around the TV to see Willie play that night. And then, of course, the next day out on the road playing road hockey, everybody was Willie O'Ree. I was too young to realize the uh, closet bigotry that was going on in the National Hockey League at the time that was preventing, you know, good young black hockey players from playing. Bill got good fast, though he remained a poor skater for quite a while. I led my junior team in scoring every year. And then, of course, after I graduated from the junior program, I had a family, so I had to, I had to get a job. So I moved to British Columbia, Kitimat, British Columbia, worked in the aluminum smelter, Alcan and played senior hockey out there. And uh, I won the uh, Pacific Northwest Hockey League Scoring Championship. I won that three years in a row and set all kinds of records out there. And that's where I got scouted at. He got some positive feedback. And so he began to write letters to every NHL team in the hopes of getting a tryout. Thank God for a gentleman named Tommy McVie, and he gave me the opportunity to come to the Washington Capitals training camp. So I went to the camp, and of course, I was in awe of everybody. And I remember an old sculpting, Billy Taylor, God bless his soul. He told me, you go out there and you hit everything that moves. And uh, that's what I did. I think I was only off my feet once in the entire week. Bill's hard work paid off, and he got assigned to a minor league team in Dayton, Ohio. And this was Bill's moment to prove himself. I ended up with 13 goals and 14 assists and 300 minutes and penalties. That was my first year. But I went home and I said, I know I can play in that league, and I know I can play well in that league. Better because, like I said, I, I said, I'm going to go back. I'm not going to be nervous. I'm just going to let it flow. So I think I ended up scoring 35 goals that year and making the all-star team. You know, that's, that's how it all started. Like Bob, Bill says that his teammates were largely supportive. And I was the only black guy on the team, so all the rest of the guys were white. But they had my back. They were great teammates, and as well as the city of Dayton, they embraced me and, and my family and took care of us. And they made it easy for me because, to be quite honest with you, there was so much racial unrest in the 70s down in the U.S. You know, I did have that in the back of my mind all the time, every time you went out. But opposing teams were another story. The worst was in Kalamazoo. I had relatives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I had uh, my aunt and my three cousins were there. So I would get them tickets to come to the game. He invited all of them to watch him play in a playoff game. I come in there and I got the tickets for my family and uh, we uh, get ready to, to play. And I look in the stands and hanging from the rafters is uh, a great big black ape or a big black gorilla with a Dayton sweater on with my number on it. So God bless my mother and my grandfather because they always told me that, you know, being a good player, you're, you're, they're going to do things to distract you and try to get you off your game and that type of thing. But when I seen that, that ape hanging from the rafters, that just, that just gave me so much more adrenaline. I turned that negative into a positive. 
I probably uh, ended up scoring a couple of goals and having a couple of fights and having one of my best games when those types of things happened, right? But his perseverance paid off. In 1974, the Washington Capitals called him. Bill Riley was going to the NHL. The Washington Capitals got their start in 1974, and like most expansion teams, they were horrible. But even by those standards, Bill Riley admits that he wasn't fully equipped for the NHL when he got the call. When I was called up in 1974, I was not ready to play at the National Hockey League level. The first NHL game I ever seen, I was playing, you know, live. And on the starting lineup, and when they were playing the National Anthem, I was shaking so bad, I was trying to hold my legs. <laughs> and I said, I hope nobody's looking at me, because I was shaking. I was really sh- shaking, but I wasn't ready. You know, I got sat back down, and it was a positive experience. I used that experience as a positive experience. Went back down, worked hard again. But that one game did mark an important first. And Mike Marsden and I made history together. The first time two black players ever played the same team in the National Hockey League. And I believe at the time we might have been the only two. Mike Marson was the first black player to play in the NHL after Willie O'Ree. Mike Marson is not a big penalty minute man, Tim, uh, but he, he took exception to the hit from Howitt. And then he gave him the little shot to the chest, which Howitt, of course, had to say, all right, no way I'll back away from it. And they both got the helmets off. And- he was drafted by the Capitals when he was just 18, and he debuted for the team in 1974. But unlike Riley, Marson was an everyday player, notching 16 goals and 12 assists in his rookie season. But in that first season, Mike was on the receiving end of a lot of hate. Here he is from a 2019 interview with NHL.com. It was pretty intense. There were a lot of situations that went down then. You had uh, the hate mail was something that always rubbed me the wrong way because it was so cowardly. Uh, where yeah. people would cut out words out of magazines and stick them to a page and then mail it to not just the Capital Center uh, out in Largo, but to your home. And when you're going on a 10-day road trip and you have a, a wife at home or friends staying at your place, you know, you have to be wondering if they're safe. Mike was younger than I was. Once in a while, a teammate may make a slip and make a racial slur in the dressing room or talk about somebody else or something like that. Oh, I don't mean, you know, you, you address it. Oh, no, no, I don't mean you. You're not like them. You know how many times I got that? Uh, comparing me to the American blacks. Oh, you're not like them. You're not like them, right? I'm, oh, my God, you know. So Mike had trouble handling that stuff, right? He's ready to explode, right? You know, we were on a bus one time. And this is something that blows me away. In Washington, you know, it's, it's predominantly black population. 99% of the cab drivers at the airports in D.C., are black. We're on the bus going to the airport, and uh, this here uh, bus driver was driving us, and then all of a sudden, one of the taxi drivers must have cut him off, and uh, he dropped the M-bomb. So Mike was losing his shit. So I put my I put my arm down and to, to, to try to hold him in the seat, because Mike would have tore that bus driver up. That's when I realized how strong Mike Marsden was, and I had to calm Mike down, right? Because and Mike had went out there and, and, and did what I wanted to do and what should have been done. But the biggest insult was, was the coach at the time sitting in the front seat beside the bus driver laughing, never addressed it, never addressed it, right? 
we didn't want to rock the boat. We felt that if we rock the boat, then we're going to make it bad for other blacks. It took so long for the blacks to get to the National Hockey League. If we're perceived as a problem, guys, then that's going to hurt the other kids coming up behind us. So, you know, we had to bite our lip, bite our tongue and zip our lip a, a lot over the years. I don't know if I was doing things right or not at the time. Mike Marson had the potential to be a star, but the racism really ate away at him. After his rookie season, Mike's play got worse. I think, uh, I think I internalized the negative racial aspect too much. I took it too personal. Uh, it's how I'm wired. And when you're going into a place and you're looking around in the stands and here's all these people and they're all looking to see who's going to get you. <laughs> who's going to take you out? That's the game on a different level. Because now you're not just playing to win. Yeah. Now you got to watch your back. you got to get in and out of situations. you got to know to get your head up because so-and-so is going to be running you. Somebody else is trash-talking you. You know, there was so much stuff going on that it, it was incredible. The way he was being treated in certain situations, there was a lot going on in, on his head, that inside of his head, that had to affect his play. You know, and at the time, Mike was married to a white lady, and they had a family and stuff like that. And that, you know, I mean, when I reflect back on that, uh, you know, I think that that played a role in Mike's departure. When it popped up, you just had to have, find a way to deal with it where it, you didn't end up in the, in the papers. You would have been wrong. Whatever way you handle it, you'd have been wrong. So you just had to pretend he didn't hear it lots of times. Mike had the potential to be the first black star in the NHL, but he wasn't the first such player to have his dreams dashed by racism. Before Mike, there was Herb Carnegie. Herb Carnegie was probably the best black hockey player ever. You know, he just recently got into the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame as a builder. But in my mind, he should have went in as a hockey player. It's not an exaggeration to say that Carnegie could have been an all-time great if he had been in the NHL. He played for the Quebec Provincial League in the 1940s and was voted MVP of the league three separate times. But Carnegie was never truly given a chance. During his first year playing junior hockey with the Toronto Young Rangers in 1938, Con Smythe, the owner and manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, saw him play. He was incredibly impressed by what he saw, and he's said to have commented that he would give $10,000 to any man who could turn Herb Carnegie white. Herb passed away in 2012, but here he is speaking to Inside Hockey in 2009. I was good enough for the Leafs, because according to Con Smythe, I would take Carnegie tomorrow for the Maple Leafs if... Someone can turn them white. Now, I got that statement when I was 18. How would you feel? I feel awful. I can't forget it. Because he cut my knees off. He broke my legs. <laughs> it's horrible. So I don't want people to go through that. I can go back to that, that very moment 
when Ed Wilde had me at the side of the boards and, and telling me the story. <laughs> I'm sorry. Herb would go on to play for the Quebec Aces, where he led an all-black line and played with Jean Beliveau, widely considered one of the ten greatest players ever. Bill remembers running into Beliveau one day. I can remember when I played the Montreal Forum and, and this big tall gentleman come around the corner by the dressing room and I was like a deer in headlights. It was Jean Beliveau. And uh, Jean goes, hi, Bill, how you doing? And well, I was in shock again because I didn't know how does he know my name? And so we had a conversation about Herb Carnegie. We got talking. I said, how good was Herb Carnegie? And he said he was better than me. That's what Jean Beliveau said to me. And I went, holy smokes. But again, still being young and naive, I didn't realize, you know, what they did to, to prevent him from playing in the National Hockey League. I mean, my God almighty, it would have been something to have a black superstar in the National Hockey League. It would be many, many decades before there was a bona fide black star in the NHL. Depending on your definition, that honor could go to either Grant Fuhr, the goaltender during the legendary Gretzky-led Oilers teams in the 1980s, or to Jerome McGinley, an offensive juggernaut for the Calgary Flames who made his debut in 1996. And I find it hard not to imagine how different the NHL could have been for black players if Carnegie had been allowed to play or if Marson had been allowed to prosper. But in the 1970s, Bill Riley and Mike Marson continued to pursue their hockey dreams. After his one-game debut in 1974, Bill was sent back down. But over the next year in the minors, he excelled. I was leading the team in three or four categories, I believe, with penalty minutes being one of them, of course. So I said to the coach and general manager, I said, look, while I was home, I got offered a pretty good job. And if I don't get an opportunity to go up to the National Hockey League, I'm going home and uh, take the job. I said, I said, I'm every bit as good as the guys are calling up around me. I have more goals. I have more penalty minutes. I have more assists. You know, rah, 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 rah. So Coach Larry Mickey, he did not want to lose me. So he must have called Washington. They said, okay, we'll bring him up for a cup of coffee to keep him happy and send him back. So when I came up, I played so well, they had to keep me. And I ended up getting Rookie of the Year that year for the Washington Capitals and having a great year. Bill and Mike became closer the longer they played together. And him and I became very good friends. And we ended up on, not only were we the first two blocks to play on the same team together, we were the first two blocks to play on the same line together. I mean, we could wreak havoc because he was physical, he was big and strong, and I was big and strong. And while neither of them hit that star level, they both remained fixtures on the Washington Capitals for years. But one year at a training camp, they got the news that every player dreads. And it came to them in the worst possible way. Mike and I went for lunch. We're coming back from lunch and all of a sudden all the media are running at us like crazy, right? We're looking behind us like, what, what's going on? That's how we found out that they were sending us to the miners. They didn't call us in the office like everybody else, set us down and say, look, you got to go down and work on this. You got to go down and work on that. That's how we found out. And to me, that was a, one of the most gutless, cowardly acts I've ever seen to disrespect us like that. We got probably 20 media people around us, plus everybody else, fans and everybody else. And that's how we got blindsided. And that's how we found out that we got sent to the miners. And uh, that never sat well with me. 
all these tough guys in the league, I'm not saying all of them, but I probably 75% of them, I had more points. Plus I had as many fights, you know, and I could fight. If that had been a white player, somebody would have said, well, okay, he can score. He's good defensively. He can fight, but we'll, we'll, we'll take him for a fighter. I don't even know how I could have ever cleared waivers with the numbers that I had. That's, you know, that still haunts me. And I think that destroyed Mike too. So that, that there is probably one of the low points in my, in my career. Mike Marson would play another handful of games with the LA Kings the next season, but his hockey career was done. He would go on to take a job as a bus driver for the Toronto Transit Commission and would spend much of his time with his family and painting. Bill Riley, though, stayed with hockey. After another stint in the minors, he got called up by the Winnipeg Jets and played 11 more games in the NHL. But then he got that bad news for one last time. So I got sent down and uh, I just, I went in the bathroom and I cried and cried and cried and cried. Because I, I, I knew it wasn't fair, right? It wasn't fair. If you're coaching or managing, you want to put the best team on the ice you can possibly put on the ice. I just got done wrong by it. And then again, but again, I kept my mouth shut. I was thinking about the guys, kids of color coming behind me. And I didn't want to kick up a big fuss. Bill never made it back to the NHL, but he continued to play in the minor leagues. I was the captain of the Nova Scotia Voyagers, and I was the captain of the New Brunswick Hawks when we won the Calder Cup. And that was unheard of to even see a black man or a man of color wearing a letter in professional hockey. And here I was, the captain of two teams, two different teams and two different organizations. And I loved the game, and I wanted to help kids along the way, and I think I achieved that. Stories like Bill Riley's and Mike Marson's aren't normally highlighted or celebrated by the NHL. Bill still thinks about his first game in the NHL, when him and Mike Marson became the first two black players on the ice together. I thought it was a a tremendous day in history, but I still feel to this day it hasn't been recognized. They talk about Willie because Willie was number one, and and rightfully so. But what about the night Mike Myers and I made history against the Philadelphia Flyers, you know? I don't see that anywhere, and I, and I never hear it. That is part of National Hockey League history. That's, that is part of Black history. How come it's not recognized? How come, you know, it's not represented anywhere, right? And then there's all of those other players, the ones who didn't even get a chance to skate onto the ice in the years between Willie O'Ree and Mike Marson. Here's Bob Dawson again. From 67 to 74, you had that gap. And it was like there is an unwritten policy against Blacks, despite the fact that there were a number of highly talented Nova Scotians who were playing semi-pro and pro hockey in Canada and the U.S. There was Bobby Collins and Frankie Danky Dorrington, Stan Maxwell, John Mintus, and Alton White. These individuals were showcasing their skills, highly talented, did not have the opportunity to make it to the NHL, while lesser talented white players were making it to the big league. So I want to return to that earlier question. What happened during those years? Now, there's a few possible answers. The first is that there simply weren't black players good enough to make it. And I find that one pretty hard to stomach. As we've seen, there were plenty of incredibly talented black hockey players to pick from, especially in the Maritimes and in and around Toronto. The second answer 
is that there just weren't enough spots. Until 1967, there were only six teams in the NHL. That number doubled, and then in 1974, the year that the Washington Capitals brought Riley and Marson on, the league had expanded to 18 teams. So it seems clear that additional roster spots would mean more opportunities for black players. But there's a third explanation that I think is worth taking seriously, and we can look to the history of the NFL for a parallel. In the early days of the National Football League, there were a small number of black players. But in 1933, that all changed. NFL owners secretly introduced a policy of racial segregation. And it wasn't until 1946 that a black man would again don an NFL jersey. So the question has to be asked, did something like that happen in the NHL? At the moment, we have no evidence that it did. But compared to other leagues, we have shockingly little contemporaneous reporting about the NHL's attitudes and policies, official or otherwise, towards non-white players. When Willie O'Ree played for the Bruins in 1958, there were few prominent black athletes in North America who were outwardly political. But in the 1960s, athletes were at the center of the American civil rights and black power movements. Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos were known for their politics as much as for their athletic prowess. So it doesn't seem unreasonable to me to think that the moneyed white owners of NHL teams might have looked at that and made a gentleman's agreement to not allow any of that in their league. We can't know for sure, but I think it's a far more reasonable guess than to simply once again parrot the often-told lie that there just weren't enough good black hockey players. Bill Riley is glad that more people than ever know the story of Willie O'Ree, but he wishes that his generation of black players received some kind of recognition. Willie broke, broke the barrier, like Mike and I and Tony and guys that did a lot. We're never contacted for anything. And that's a heart that doesn't even talk to us. You know, we've done our part. We're going to hide the rest of it. We're not going to have anything to say about what, what the other guys went through. And the other guys that the other guys of color that never get an opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. It's just saying, hey, if we bestow all these honors on Willie, we've done our job and we don't have to talk on nobody else. And he says that hockey can still be a hostile place for people who look like him. Back in the days when I played, and, you know, some of the slurs that were thrown at me and some of the things that happened and like what just happened to Wayne Simmons there when they threw the bananas on the ice. And why would people of color want to go to a hockey game and listen to that and feel threatened? And I will tell you this in all honesty, the movie Slapshot is not exaggerated a whole lot. 90% of that stuff actually happened. Now, can you imagine back in that violent time being a, a person of color and trying to survive that stuff? I kept all this stuff inside of me. It's just been the last two years now that I said, hey, I'm not keeping it in anymore. I'm just going to tell it the way it was, and that is the way it was. You know, they can't do it to the young kids coming up, right? Because people are going to say, well, here they go again. I remember back when they done that to Mike Myers, and I remember when they done that to Bill Riley. If I don't tell my story, who's going to tell them? 
That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Bob Dawson, Willie O'Ree and Michael McKinley, Wayne Scanlon at Sportsnet, Hubert Davis, CBC Sports, William G. Douglas, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.